Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Reagan Pugh, a keynote speaker, facilitator, and writer who creates experiences for individuals and teams to practice gratitude, develop healthy mindsets, and take purposeful action. His first book will be out in 2022. It's about helping highly emotional people get unstuck and take action. Welcome to the show, Reagan. I'm honored to be here, Douglas. So good to have you, Reagan. Always enjoy our conversations and excited to actually record this one. Yeah, brother. So let's start off in typical control the room fashion and hear a little bit about how you got your start. How did you begin to even get interested in this work of exploring people's, you know, emotional states and helping them get unstuck? (laughs) I I think... One has to answer that question with this response, by being an incredibly emotional person myself. Being growing up, I was a journaler and I was a feeler and I was a romantic and I did theater and I wanted to be on stage and I was fascinated by what it took to move a group of people. And I think it started out with wanting to be an actor Uh, But I abandoned that to follow a girl to college and got involved in student government and realized that the same things I loved about acting were existing in student government and getting consensus and moving people toward a vision. And then after that, I taught high school for a few years and then taught college for a few years and then got into consulting. And there's kind of this through line of realizing that there's an emotional frequency in any group of people. And if you can tap into that, man, you can guide people to do some pretty important things. You know, it's not uncommon to have facilitators come on the show and find out that there is a theater background. Oh, yeah. Government, not so much. <laughs> and maybe you're the first person that told me that government is theater with a straight face. <laughs> I didn't even mean to. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but let's talk about let's talk about your theater background and how important you think that has been in the formation of kind of what you do now. Oh, man. You know, it's something really special to be in front of a group of people and know that they're really invested in where you're taking them. And I just became, and I'm also, I'm a pastor's kid, like two generations deep. And so from all angles, there's this performative, inspirational thread that 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 is run through through my story. And I think the thing that I have to realize is I shifted from acting to 
consensus building and facilitating is um, you got to let go of the idea that people are there for you. And you got to let go of the idea that um, you're the most important person in the room that the show's about you. But there's still a similarity around uh, what it means to steward the emotions of the room. And I still carry that from the theater days. And I believe that a good facilitator is acutely aware of the energy in the room and is constantly tweaking their approach to make sure that they're, that they're taking care of the people that are there. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we've spoke about this in the past and we share this kind of belief that there's a performative a aspect to facilitation. Certainly you're kind of getting up in front of the room quite often or in front of the Zoom or what have you. Mm. And I liked your point about the fact that it's not about the attention being all on us and we're not necessarily the star of the show because that kind of attitude's not going to well, it's certainly not going to be the best attitude to have the best interest of our participants in mind. I really thought your points around the fact that it still is performative, but it's it's almost more that we're in the support role where we can kind of tee up others to. And when I think about like various forms of theater or acting, you know, there's a lot of similarity in some roles in those cases, right, around these support roles. Yeah, particularly in, in improv. And I didn't know you and I share a big love of, of improv and, and the way that that connects with facilitation. And, you know, it, in improv, all of the language is around endowing your stage partner with gifts and making, and in your own, your, your improv troupe is, you know, your only as good, uh, is, is, is the person that you're working with. And it's a really selfless form of theater. That I believe is uh, is is more directly connected to what good facilitation looks like, because um, there's no ego, and and uh, there's a belief that the best thing that could happen on stage is a thing that's going to come from the group, not from one person. So you said something a moment ago that I wanted to come back to, and that was this notion of an emotional frequency. And this notion that a group has an emotional frequency and kind of tapping into that. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because it's a fascinating concept and I haven't necessarily heard it coined in exactly that way before, but it, it really resonates with me. So I want to hear your thoughts a little more. You know, when you walk into a room to start a session, you can sense where people are at and you can sense if people are posturing and trying to look important or if there's pre-existing relationships in the room or if people are here against their will because it's some sort of a training or if they've shown up because this thing that you've putting on is the thing they feel like they need in their life. And my favorite thing to do before a session is to just kind of go around and sit on the corner of a table and talk to people to figure out where they're at and why they're in the room. And then that kind of guides on the spot what sort of warm up or opener or icebreaker is going to happen? And, and I do think about it like a frequency. Like, what do we need to dial in here? Is there already kind of like a negative tone throughout the room? Okay. What do we do? Let's throw down some gratitude stuff. Or, uh, does it seem like everyone's here and they're really excited? But my goodness, the energy might take us off course. What kind of thing do we need to do to zero in the energy and, and get people focused a little bit? But that's like the first thing that I sense when I start working with a group. And, and I, I really think that helps particularly starting. 
when you're starting a session. Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It reminds me of the times when you walk into a room and you can just kind of feel something, mm -hmm. you know, and it could be good. It could be bad. It could be neutral. It could be sideways. It could be angular. <laughs> yeah. But there's like, sometimes the word tension might be appropriate, right? And often I think junior facilitators or even junior, or, or let's say anybody that's not super on the emotional maturity curve, you know, would walk into that space and get immediately hijacked. Mm-hmm. Why do they get hijacked? You know, I think it just because if we're not coming in aware that there's, to use your word, a frequency to tune into, yeah. then we just come in and the frequency tunes us. It's good. Right? So if we're not paying attention to it, we just like become it. So if things are frenetic and we walk into a, that frenetic space, we become frenetic unless we're in observation mode and then... And then we go, oh, things are frenetic. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, I love this. I love jumping into the mode of the observer uh, because if we're not doing that, and to follow your line of thinking, it's easy to believe that the emotional frequency of a room, if we're unconscious, is about us. And I think particularly if you're a junior facilitator and you're rolling into a room, you're like, oh man, the way that they're feeling has something to do with their perception of me. And then I'm going to get in my head. And before I've even started, I've played all kinds of calculus in my brain about how I'm going to win them over or why they don't, or how this is going to go the wrong way without stopping and pausing and realizing that these people have been here long before me, interacting with one another long before me. This has nothing to do with me. Now it's time for me to do the work. And also what might appear as dysfunction to an untrained eye and maybe an untuned eye, because my eye might be trained because I've observed a lot of teams and a lot of rooms, but not this team. What's going on? This is a Monday. Is this some kind of crazy thing they do on Mondays, but they're like totally jiving and it's all good. But if I just let that hijack me to your point, mm -hmm. like I might start running calculus and it might send me down a, a bad spiral and it's not a good place to be. No, it's not. That's a really thoughtful point. You know, Trevor Bame and I, we, we ran a session one time around teams that, that have teams have three things that are unique to them. They have rituals, they have celebrations and they have their jam language, like the way that they talk with each other or the way that they interact with each other. And if, if, if you're not aware of those, and if you're not sensitive to that, uh, yeah, you could think that they're insulting each other or arguing, but that could just be the way that they are. And so I think to sum it up, the thing that we have to really be careful of is just this, this self-importance when entering into a room and, 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 and failing to enter the room with humility and curiosity and, and being in observation mode, like you said. You know, this really transitions nicely into something we were talking about in the pre-show chat, which was this notion of inner work and how important it is. And to use your your words, it was getting the mind right so that you can be in service. And I was, that's just really touching. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because it's I think it's a little more nuanced than just showing up in observation mode. But this is like preparing our minds for being just ready, much less like what's happening in the room. Yeah, I think we can really get in our own ways when we look to whatever work it is that we're doing to fill some sort of affirmational hole that we need. And so when I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the book that I'm writing and we started talking about, you know, helping highly emotional people, I've got a particular 
need for affirmation based on the kind of personality that I have uh, that can really hijack the way that I show up in a room. If I don't stop before I go in, spend some time sitting in a chair and meditating and realizing that I already have everything that I need to be whole so that I can then walk into a room and give a gift instead of trying to take something from them. A lot of times I think you see junior facilitators looking for some sort of affirmation as a part of the process, as opposed to realizing that the greatest job you could ever do would end with no one wanting to talk with you and everyone wanting to keep talking to each other because you did such a great job at connecting them with one another. In order to do that though, we have to become no one. In order to do that though, we have to do whatever we need to do internally to be at peace with the fact that we become nothing. A good facilitator becomes nothing, you know? A good facilitator empties themselves and just becomes a container for, 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 for the meeting to happen in. I don't know what that practice looks like for everybody, but I do know that starting with some sort of self-awareness around what is your like, what is the thing that you find yourself needing most from people? And be wary of how you enter into a room to facilitate with that need. Is it affirmation that you're looking for? Is it, uh, is it, is, is, is it, do, are you looking for people to challenge you? Do you, do you enjoy conflict? Do you enjoy someone banging their, their head against you for ideas? And, and, and realize that, that the facilitation room and when you're doing your work is not the place for us to go and get things that we need personally. We need to learn to give those to ourselves first. Mm. And, you know, this is ties in with another concept we were talking about around visualizing yourself in the space, in the moment, kind of projecting the capability before going into the space and trying it out, right? Because, and it really spoke to me because we often talk about this idea that practice makes practice. Mm. And if you want to get good at facilitation, you got to get the reps in and you got to just build the confidence over time of doing it and learning and maybe showing up and expecting that affirmation and then realizing that that's not a good way to, to do things and then learning to approach it in a different way. And so I guess I'm curious to hear how you might you know recommend that folks approach this visualization and how that can be a way of building kind of maybe situational awareness and confidence without maybe with less opportunities to actually show up in a real situation. Man, one of the most powerful things that I've done in my personal development in the last several years has been starting to practice visualization. And, you know, this isn't new. Michael Jordan talked about seeing himself shooting free throws. But man, the way that someone practices this with facilitation, and this is what I've been doing all year, is sitting down in the chair, closing my eyes, and envision myself preparing for a session that I'm to facilitate. And I see myself in third person, putting in the extra effort to make sure that I'm creating an agenda that's inclusive of everyone, that's differentiated to different learning styles, and then I'm approaching the, the, the gathering with empathy uh, as I'm thinking about the way that I'm designing it. And then I see myself walking into the room and being curious and not making assumptions. And then this is where it gets interesting. I envision it going really well. And I envision all of the things that I might do that I know are best practices. And I feel what it feels like to do those really well. But the interesting one is, and then 
I envision things going poorly. I'm talking about crash and burn. Like I make the worst mistake of all time. And I think about all of the anxieties that I might have and all the mistakes that I might make. I watch them happen. I feel the embarrassment that I imagine feeling. And then I do as good of a job as I can to finish. Or I see myself reminding myself that this is just one day you'll move on. I imagine people in the audience having compassion on me and urging me to get back to the work. And I think the power of this is we're not just thinking about positive things and then we'll manifest all of the great things in our lives. We're also imagining what happens when things go wrong, because things do go wrong. And you imagine yourself recovering from it with grace. Uh, and, and you imagine people being more benevolent than you, than you thought that they would be. So either way, you knock it out of the park or you don't. You've seen it before. And since you've seen it before and you've been there before in your mind's eye, it's a lot easier for you to connect those dots into your future. You know, I think the unique thing for me there, because I've definitely heard the project the positive, which we maybe hear a little too much of, because if it's all positive, then where's the balance? And then I've heard the project negative that, you know, I think that's important to balance it. The thing I found unique and really fascinating is the grace and benevolence, right? Like, how do I practice coming out of that negative with some grace? And then also practice realization that people can be benevolent and supportive. Yeah. And gosh, if we come into that situation expecting people to be that way, how do you think they might be? Dude, you discover what you're looking for. I was just facilitating mm. with a group today and they were saying, well, what happens when you have the people in the group that are rolling their eyes during this certain warm-up activity? And I said, let's squash this right now. Let's not imagine that you're going to have people in your group rolling their eyes necessarily. Let's imagine that they're benevolent and that they're showing up and that they want to, and they want to learn and that they're interested in what you have to say and they're rooting for you. It's fascinating to me how easy we believe that people in an audience that we're working with are against us, when in reality, have you ever been in an audience, Douglas, where you've thought, I just hope this facilitator blows it? Or <laughs> don't you hope that they're going to create an experience that's enjoyable for you to be a part of? Whenever I have been in an audience watching someone give a talk, and even if I'm not enjoying the talk, and I'm like, what is this person all about? They seem not, they don't seem like my kind of people. And then they really start to crash and burn where it's just like awkward. And, you know, you're, you're just feeling like, ooh, this is like a curb your enthusiasm moment. Yeah. And what you're thinking to yourself is like, I hope they just get this thing back on track. Because even though I wasn't enjoying it, at least it wasn't a train wreck like it is now. So I'm still, even though I didn't particularly like them, I was still rooting for them to get back on track, right? Totally. Totally. Yeah. You're rooting for them. I like that. So that's good. I think that's a really nice framing, whether it's we're projecting ahead of time for something we're doing or even just thinking about this whole, like, how do we deal with the naysayers? Because it's like, I mean, how often does it really happen? And what are they really naysaying? Yep. The other thing I have to remind people of, and I'd love to get your take on this, Reagan, is most often the rolling the eyes or the naysaying has to do with some inner conflict they're having that has nothing to do with what I'm doing and how I'm showing up, has everything to do with something they're personally dealing with or some weird dynamic on the team. Absolutely. The most important thing that we have to remember is basically everything is not about us. 
Like nothing is about us. No one's thinking about us. No one's going to go home at dinner tonight and talk about us. Uh, no one's concerned uh, about our aptitude uh, as, as much as we are. And I think that the level of growth beyond that is realizing that if you do have a naysayer, if you do have someone that's kind of just spewing negativity, man, in some way or another, they're doing that because they believe that that's what they need to do to survive right now. And so they're protecting something or they're compensating for something. And if that's the state that they believe they need to be in and publicly show to other people, there must be some deep pain going on. And I hope that we can have some compassion there as opposed to being angry at them for not giving us compliments. Mm, it comes back to that affirmation piece, right? It's like, why are we there? Are we there to really help them through whatever their struggle is? Or are we really there to like in hopes that they really liked that warm up or that icebreaker? Exactly, man. And, and you know, this is, and then, you know, this, this kind of line that I used earlier is one that I steal from our friend Stephen Tomlinson around the idea that, you know, you know, you've done a great job when afterward they're not lining up to talk to you. They're continuing to deepen relationships with one another. Like it's not about us. Yeah, that's beautiful. Not necessarily great for biz dev, <laughs> <laughs> but really great for the, the work in the room. It's great for the work in the room. That's right. <laughs> so I want to talk about the kind of this inner work again. Really, I'm going to shift back to that because it's so important. And I love that you've spent so much time drilling into it. And you talked a little bit about, you know, this need to feel confident in the work and visualize it. And you also talked in the pre-show chat a bit about, you know, would I want to do this? Or, you know, my word is, I talk about it being authentic, right? I feel like it's true to myself. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And we got a fun little paradox to unravel here okay. in a second too. But I want to I want to hear a little bit more about like, what that means for you, how it shows up around, or even what advice you might have for listeners around tapping into this, you know, what I want to do this. There's a really funny thing that happens. And I learned this when I was teaching 10th grade English. Yeah, there's a really funny thing that happens when you move from experiencing a lesson plan or a workshop or something, and you begin designing it. For some reason, it's like we lose our minds and we start to design things that we would never want to experience ourselves. We just get so obsessed with having something to fill the time because our greatest fear is not filling the time and not having things to keep people busy because we're worried about what might happen in silence, what might happen in the in-between moments. So we build some crappy agenda full of activities that don't matter. So at least we fill the time. And all along the way, while we're worried about filling the time, what we do is we forget about what the people really need. And as we're doing our own inner work so that we can help other people do their inner work, it is really important to practice empathy and consider, would I want to sit through this? Would they, does someone, re is this really the right way to guide someone through this activity or lead someone to this sort of realization. Now it's gonna require two things. It's gonna require more work to prepare activities that are more thoughtful and meaningful. And it's gonna require more courage to show up and deliver those kinds of activities. But my goodness, 
are we in this business to do something powerful with a group of people or not? Mm. I believe that's what great facilitators do. Incredible. And so I want to talk a little bit now about something else you mentioned, which was this notion of it can often be difficult or create moments of tension for facilitators when they're afraid to take risks. So if there's something that maybe that's slightly outside of their comfort zone, maybe there's a method or an activity or something where they're maybe that's the thing they need to start exploring and trying, but they're afraid to do it. And in this need to do that. And why is that so important? I've got a friend named Spud, Spud Marshall, who's a just fantastic facilitator. And, and one of the things that I admire most about him anytime we collaborate on an event together is there's always at least one thing that might not work that he decides to do. And it's normally really risky and bold, but the potential payoff could be huge. And I've watched him crash and burn trying something that he thought would really be meaningful for a group of people. And I've also watched him recover beautifully from that same experience. I think as facilitators, we can't get so precious with the activities we're doing and how perfect they are. Because as a facilitator, I really think we're not in the business of modeling perfection to people. If we're really being honest, the work of being a facilitator is getting up and modeling what it means to be human and creating a real experience. So sometimes the greatest gift you can give an audience as a facilitator is to, with an honest heart, Try something that you're excited about trying that you believe would would potentially add value to this group of people and do it with courage because it's going to help you grow and it might be meaningful for them. And if it doesn't work, I think sometimes the best moments that endear an audience or a group to a facilitator is when the facilitator honestly says, that didn't work. And honestly, I'm a little embarrassed right now. But I need you to know, when I worked that out in my head a week ago, I thought it was going to guide us to this beautiful place because that's what I want for us. Show me an audience that's going to go and, and, and crucify that facilitator. I don't think they exist. So there's this beautiful relationship that exists when, as facilitators, we stop pursuing perfection and we start trying to model what it looks like to be human because when we can do that, we give permission for the people in the group to do the same. That's really, really nice. And, you know, it makes me think about this thing that I've seen some facilitators do. They like to make a mistake early on, intentionally, just to show that humility. Beautiful. That imperfection. You know, it seems maybe a little manipulative, but I think it's like a nice little forced humility, maybe. I don't find it manipulative, man. I, I, I think that the intention is real. And, and I think that the intention is to get us to the point where we're connecting more deeply. I like that. So I wanted to get your thoughts here on this paradox around, you know, needing to be authentic and doing what you feel like you'd want to do or what you would enjoy or what's feels right. But while at the same time, not being afraid to take risks. So something that might seem risky might also seem not right. And so how to, What's some advice to facilitators out there that, that are now thinking, oh, well, I need to kind of be true to myself, but I also need to push myself out of the comfort zone and take risk? How do people hold both at the same time? Joseph Campbell has a really great quote about doing things that we're afraid of. He says, 
In the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. And as a facilitator who's considering whether or not I want to try something that might be risky and questioning their own motivation, Douglas, as you put it, where is this really a thing that I'm trying to do so I grow or is this me just like posing, trying to be someone that I'm not? Do I have that kind of paradox correct there? Yeah. Yeah. So I think when we're afraid of doing something, when we're genuinely afraid of it because we're afraid it might not work, that's probably the sign of the thing that we should run toward. I I, I believe that that's going to be the best indicator for where our, your growth as a facilitator falls. When we start sniffing comparison, I think that's whenever we need to become wary about the other, which is um, me trying to copy something that someone else has done that they seem to get a really great reaction from, or um, me trying to impress a certain group of people by trying this thing that someone does that I know that they like. One is completely internal, and I don't know if this is going to sync up, but what one is completely internal, and it is your private conversation with yourself of, is this, this is scary to me, and I'm afraid this might not work. I think that's a really true feeling, and that's the calling to move forward. The other one is external. The other one involves your comparison to other people mm. and you watching what what kind of brand someone else might have and trying to emulate it. And I think that's the way that you can see the difference between the two. Yeah, that's a really nice way to think about that. And specifically around, is my inner self too afraid to take the next step versus externalizing something that is not really me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's cool. So I wanted to kind of maybe start to shift gears a little bit into thinking about, you know, if we were to apply all of this, what kind of becomes possible in the future? You know, if more people started to behave and work and collaborate and commune and relate in these ways, what will change in the world? And before, as we make that transition, you mentioned something in the pre-show chat that I thought was really, really quite special. And it's something that it sounds like you're starting to do more recently, which is kind of embodied in this notion of kind of just taking care of the people. But the specific example you gave was around pausing to take a breath and just checking in on what's going right. And I think that really is, to me, such a beautiful little moment that punctuates this transition. If more people started to do those types of things, what does it create for the world? That's beautiful. I know you've had Solomon Masala on your podcast. So if you're listening, you need to go listen to him, friends, uh, because I've learned so much from him about the power of breath and about the power of focusing on who we are being versus what we are doing. So oftentimes, Douglas, to reference the breath that you were talking about, I'll find that after a break or if we're in the middle of working through something really difficult and man, we're at loggerheads, uh, pausing and saying, okay, relax your shoulders, close your eyes with me and saying, look, this is as woo-woo as we're going to get. We're not going to hold hands. We're not going to do anything. This is neuroscience. Let's pause for a moment and let's take a few deep breaths together. And let's visualize like one thing that's going right in our life right now, because we know that whenever we focus on abundance and not lack, when we think even of one small thing that's going right, like I've got leftover tacos in the fridge that I can't wait to eat for dinner, 
then what that does is that opens up our synapses. That makes us more interested in collaboration, more willing to discuss ideas, and more open to things that we might not have been open to before. And dude, we all need to be doing that throughout our days anyway. And so as a facilitator, our job is not necessarily to be liked, it's to do what is good for the group. And so I think sometimes it's important for us to give folks a little bit of a dose of a breath and a recenter. And if we can do that, if we can do something like that, and if we can get people in the habit of being aware of their feelings and aware of their present state, and we can create an overall more aware population of people who are curious about why they're feeling the way they're feeling and who have tools to understand that if I can focus on what I'm grateful for, I can completely shift my perspective toward other people, toward myself, toward my work. I think that that's the whole reason we set out to do this work of facilitation in the first place, because I think that we can then create healthier organizations who do good for our communities and for the world. I couldn't agree more, Regan. You know, the idea that facilitation can be the force multiplier to help all of those that are doing amazing work in the world is what kind of keeps me going every day. You know, it's like there's so many important causes and so many important needs and so much great work that's happening in the world. And if we can help those people be more effective, gosh, that seems like good work done. So I think we share that vision in common, and I love love the words. So had to take a pause there because it, it really struck me. It's really, really great. So I want to just wrap up here by giving you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Yeah, the most important thing for me to keep in mind as I'm facilitating that, that's kept me afloat, even when I'm really doubting myself, is this idea of enough this idea of enough and it, and it applies to two scenarios. One, as a facilitator, we must believe with 100% certainty that the answers to the group that we're working with's greatest challenges are already present within the group, that these people in the room are enough. They have enough wisdom, enough tools and enough experiences for us to guide them towards some sort of an answer, towards some sort of a realization. And in order to do that, we must also believe that we are enough. I must walk into a room and believe that I have everything that I need to connect with these people. No magic tool, no magic framework, no magic system is gonna change that. It's important to have all kinds of tools and disciplines in our tool belt. But beneath all of that, this comes back to that inner work, Douglas, that I think we all have to do is a realization that I'm enough. And if I believe that I have everything I need, then we can do some real work together. I love that. It reminds me of, um, of Joseph Heller in this uh, conversation with Kurt Vonnegut around, I have something he'll never have enough. Mm. so with that Reagan it's been a great conversation and I invite the listeners to check out your book I know it's not out at the time of this recording and probably not by the time this gets released but if you're hearing this and you're interested definitely pay attention on socials we're going to be 
amplifying on our socials when it comes out. And uh, we'll update the show notes when it comes out. So if you're listening later, definitely check out the show notes. The link to the book will probably be there. I guess, Reagan, if someone is trying to find you or the book, you know, I'm sure they go to Amazon and search on Reagan Pugh, but like, is there some other place where they can locate you or find out more about the book as time progresses? Yeah, man. Two places that I'm having the most fun doing work right now is uh, Instagram. I'm at Reagan Pugh posting videos about thoughts like this. I'm enjoying that video medium a little more these days. And then I still write on Medium and would love to continue the conversation there. I'm at Reagan Pugh on Medium, whereas the book release gets closer. I'm going to start dropping chapters and teasing that out. So you can join me on Instagram and Medium at Reagan Pugh. Excellent. Well, highly recommend everyone go do that. And um, if you don't get a chance, definitely check out the show notes or the or our social, we're going to be amplifying it when it comes out and Reagan, make sure to share it with us so we can do that. And um, yeah, really fun chatting today, Reagan. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, brother. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.